You sisters know that my skin has been glowing lately. And I'm here to tell you my secret. Oak Essentials. You've heard us talk about their line of luxurious products before, and we're so excited to have them as a sponsor of OK Sister Podcast because now you can join in on the glowy goodness. You know Oak Essentials is legit because it was created by none other than our favorite brand ever, Jenny Kane. Oak Essentials is known for its simple approach to self-care with a lineup of foundational skincare staples made with high-quality ingredients that drive results. It aims to unlock healthy, glowing skin with decadent and hydrating ingredients that give you a luxe, dewy glow. I won't shut up about the Moisture Rich Balm. It's a nutrient-rich balm that supports collagen production and delivers serious hydration for a luminous glow. And a luminous glow indeed. The way my skin feels like butter after applying this balm. This balm will make you never want to wear makeup again. And you can apply generously during your night routine to lock in moisture as you dream. It's the definition of beauty sleep. Treat yourself or someone else this season. You sisters will get 15% off and a free organic honey-based restorative mask with their first order. Oh my God, what a deal. When you use code OKSIS15 at checkout. That's right. 15% off plus a gift with your first order at O-A-K-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S.com. Promo code OKSIS15, OKAYSIS15. Go ahead and treat yourself. From luxurious skincare to meaningful self care, you deserve it. Welcome to OKSIS Podcast. Hi, sisters. I'm Maddie. And I'm Scout. And we are sisters IRL. I'm the older one. Yes, Scout. We know. Here at OKSIS, we believe women are multifaceted. Which is why you can expect sisterly banter on a wide range of topics such as pop culture, our entrepreneurial journeys, and mental health routines. We promise it'll be informative. And silly. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood. Hello and welcome back to OKSIS Podcast. This is Scout. And before you get too worried, don't worry, Mads is on this episode. I am just very quickly hopping on here solo to record this intro. So if you are new, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is OKSIS Podcast, a podcast that I host with my sister, Mads. And together we interview rad female guests, have a bunch of silly banter. You can expect a Wednesday episode from me covering everything from mental health, entrepreneurship, personal development, spirituality, motherhood, and an episode from Mads on Friday. Um, Basically, like I want to say it's pop culture, TikTok, all the things, you know, kind of like the it girl stuff that I have no idea what the fuck she's talking about. But on the record, she's kind of taken over my spot and she is spewing wisdom on her Friday episodes as well. All about personal development, mental health, being your best version of yourself, etc. So if you are new, that's our spiel. But today, this is a Monday episode, which means you get myself, you get Mads, and you get a guest. And Let me tell you, sisters, this is one of my favorite conversations we've ever had on the podcast. Hands down, I could have sat in Kara McKenzie's beautiful home for probably two more hours and talked to her and like it felt like it was a blink of an eye. So I feel like a part two needs to happen because there were so many more directions we could have gone 
with this episode, but we jam-packed as much as we could in in the window slot that we had with her. So who is Kira McJackson? If you do not follow her on Instagram on TikTok, you must. She's an angel investor and she has had a partnerships at RX3 Growth. She is one of the most articulate, intelligent, sharp women. I want to say like women on the internet, but just a woman in general in the industry, in on the pulse of everything. We cover so much ground in this episode from what angel investing means to what investing is. We talk about Mad's experience raising for Camber. She has all the information on what it's like to raise capital as someone who works at a fund. There's like a lot that goes into this world, guys, and Kira explains it beautifully. So she is a wealth of knowledge, a true wealth of knowledge, and we go all over the place from talking about career, what it means to be an entrepreneur versus an entrepreneur, how her natural beauty has played a factor into her leaning into her intelligence and her smarts what it means to be curious in a career, and so much more. Sisters, you are going to absolutely fall in love with this episode and fall in love with Kira. So without further ado, sisters, let's welcome Kira McKenzie to OKSIS Podcast. Miss Kira McKenzie! You guys, I'm such a fangirl. Okay, we're fangirls. Can we tell you what we were saying about you in the car? We're going to give you a little insider into our conversation. Nervous. We're like, she is so sweet she's so so helpful she's so open she's very smart she's a natural on tiktok and she's beautiful like we're trying the whole package if you looked up the whole package it would be kira Kira mckenzie McKenzie. i'm gonna listen to this recording (laughs) on my in my car you could put it as your ringtone yeah we allow you we allow you can you imagine every day like seeps into your subconscious (laughs) that's your that's your alarm clock (laughs) oh yeah if it was my ringtone that would be in the middle of air one just like (laughs) affirmations i am the perfect baggage i'm dying okay wait can we like how do we know each other (laughs) okay so i was trying to think about this with my husband he was i was like how how do i know you guys i know scout i think through yola 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 robert but like i i think i saw you on instagram Graham, and then I DM'd you. Oh, yes, because you had your book. And I said, Can I send you my book? At my wedding venue the week, two weeks before. Santa Monica proper. And so maybe I DM'd you because I followed you because of Yola. And I was like, Hey, I need to send you my book. Your wedding was beautiful or something. Yes. We shared that. But we didn't didn't meet in person first. No. No. It was on Instagram. And then how did you guys just because of me? I don't know. And then must have been Yola, but then we met from just Camber stuff and you being an investor queen. No, but we we saw her at that Nude Sticks event. Oh, yes. Nude Sticks event. That's the first time I met you in person. Oh, my God. That's the only time I've seen you other than right now. That is crazy. Yeah. That and is that, crazy. And I've seen you somewhere else. We, we did something. We saw Maggie Sellers' yes, house. Yes, Maggie's house. And... You, I don't know, just Camber somehow connected. The social media. We, and then social we, media. Okay, so we fi- you guys, love. we figured it out. Yeah, social we media. We figured it out. <laughs> social media can be really, really shitty, but it can also be really amazing. It's, yeah, I know. reasons like this. And yeah, I know. So, yeah. Oh my God. Well, we're so happy to have you. Thank you um, for inviting us into your home. So just like bombarded your beautiful it's home. It's like makes me want to remove everything. everything in my house. Okay, no, you've got to be kidding. It, this is also like for any echoes, I'm going to blame it on the oh, emptiness. On the, uh, yeah. I know it's an audio experience, but there's been multiple bad audio experience moments. That okay, since I feel like I yeah, literally record this in the, like a concrete room in my office. Yeah, we're, like we're fine. Everyone's the, the sisters it. are forgiving. Yeah, so they're, they're forgiving. So they're forgiving. Okay. 
let's just start because we have so many different like branches we want to get through. So we'll go through all of them. But Mm -hmm. we need to start with the big pivot of Kira McKenzie. Yes. Take us through this major life pivot and career shift that you went through, because that's something I think a lot of people who are listening might take such, you know, tips from you or like inspiration because you really did shift and you were so successful in both arenas so quickly. And I don't think that when people think, oh, I want to make a huge shift, they think, fuck, I'm going to have to start all over. It's going to take me another, whatever, X amount of years to get to this point. Whereas you were able to shift so seamlessly. And I think it's an amazing quality of yours. Thank you. I'm actually, that's a huge compliment because it doesn't feel like it. Um, It it feels sort of like a second life almost Mm. in a way. And it's interesting because you draw on the first life and apply it to the second. And I think that's when, when you understand your superpowers just as a human in business or in your personal life, and you can start to apply those to different aspects of your life or different career paths. I think that's when you grow super quickly. Mm. I think that's probably why it's been easier for me, maybe from a public perception, to like move into this like very, very different sort of industry. Wait, what are your superpowers? What have you identified them as? So backstory, I was the second employee at a boutique PR firm. And we sold that to a performance marketing agency that was sort of like, I would say about 150 people at the time. And then we scaled that to about 500 while I was there. And then we sold it to another private equity firm. They were already owned by a private equity firm. And that was sort of like the first time that I started to understand what the world outside of like being a service provider really looked like. And going through that process and having a banker and liaisoning through like that segment of life and just like career, that was what ultimately pivoted me into this world. But I think from my first world, it's very simple. So I actually really hate saying this out loud to people. My superpowers are just, I am extremely curious. Mm. And I think that is, that's the one and like only truthfully that I think people really need is just like curiosity. And then the other, because if you're curious, you're interested. And if you're interested, you want to engage and you want to learn and you want to be a sponge. And I kind of just approach every day with that curiosity, just naturally. And then the other side of that is just like, I'm good with people. And I think if you can be good with people and curious, those are just the qualities that are more innate. The rest of it can be learned. Mm-hmm. So explain what you do now. Okay. Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> what, what's your job title? What are you, what are you doing? So I'm an investor. I invest in consumer brands. I'm an angel investor that invests in early stage companies. But then for nine to five, I work for a growth equity firm where I run our value add strategy. And that firm is called RX3 Growth Partners. We're co-founded by Aaron Rodgers. So there's a celebrity component and we invest in later stage brands. So kind of like post A growth stage inflection point companies. And then we provide sort of like differentiated capital through that like unique talent base that's authentic and organic, but then of course my background. So the goal is like inject a needed sort of support that isn't necessarily operational, but is super value add regardless. Mm, I see. How do you differentiate? Do you have any conflict of interest with your nine to five if you are investing privately? It's a great question. So especially because you, I feel like you might have insider information and then like go and do it privately. What's interesting is like the fund gets everything first. Mm. Anytime like I get a deal, regardless of if it's like 
pre-revenue, which uh-huh. RX3 would never be able to play with. But regardless of if it's pre-revenue, RX3 hears about it first. We evaluate it from the fund perspective. And if it's not a fit, then it's something that I can do as an angel as long as it's disclosed. And there's actually a lot of synergy too, because it's like I'm typically investing a little earlier. And that mm-hmm. means that it gives me opportunities to sort of like build partnerships with later stage companies or graduate them into like the growth equity world that is RX3. So for instance, Bala is a very good example. Like I'm an investor, an angel investor in Bala. You probably know Bala yeah, we had We had Natalie on the pod. Yeah, we they were they were Natalie. a client of mine right when they started. It was we the best. Her. We love the Bala's family. The whole oh, family. We love the Bala's. No, because the, the Bala's, Bala's family, because <laughs> Natalie and her <laughs> husband, <laughs> Max, and they're the best. They're the best. Family business. We love the Ballas. Yeah, yeah we love the Ballas. It's like the Ballas um, from, from Pitch Perfect. Literally. <laughs> 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 but it makes sense. Like that's that's a brand that I invest in personally, but then Core Power is a brand that is one of our portfolio companies Got it. for RX3. And building those types of partnerships, there's oh, a lot of value sure. for sure, later sure. stage companies to remain like cool and sexy and totally. coastal. But those brands that I invest in personally, they need like mass awareness. So it's just like very synergistic. That's great. Um, Question about angel investing specifically. If someone wants to get into angel investing, what is the minimum that one would need to start to play around as an angel investor? It really depends on your relationships Mm -hmm. and it really depends on the value that you offer outside of just the money. Because ultimately, like when you're talking these tiny little checks, like the returns are not going to be like ground shaking and the money that you're investing in the company is not the reason why you want them, why they want you invested in the company, if that makes sense. So for me, like 5K you could play with. You could honestly, you could probably play with less. I think it's just like it should be a meaningful amount to you where the success of the company matters enough to you that you want to support. Because ultimately, like, it's not about the check size. It's about like, will you act like Warren Buffett in that deal? And are you going to help them grow through other relationships that you have or other value you can offer? I mean, but beyond that, you can go up to 100,000, 200,000. It really, it really runs the gamut. So angel investing, for some reason, I always had the number 15 in my mind. I don't know why. But angel investing, just to, to describe it, I wanted to Define say like it. to dumb it down, but that's not the <laughs> right terminology. It's kind of like being an advisor with a little bit of cash in. Yes. And okay. that's, I, so for me, I started with just sweat equity. So I started out as an advisor to companies that gave me equity in exchange for my time and my connections. And then I was like, oh, well, let's put a little bit of skin in the game, you know, Mm -hmm. and started playing with like $10,000 here Mm -hmm. and there. And it's like, that's not a huge check. But for me, it was like, oh, you know, this is sizable. I want to do this a couple of times, kind of keep it rolling. And that was like, that was how I got started. And now it's just... It's an excuse for me to be involved with companies that I'm obsessed with. Mm -hmm. It's an excuse for me to be like very publicly supportive of those companies. And like, honestly, I love it because you get so much exposure into the business side and you understand the intricacies of operations and you just get a lot of exposure, I think, that you wouldn't get into the back end side of a business, especially that early stage. And that was last year where I really like started playing with mm-hmm. angel investing into companies. And this year I'm really excited because we started investing in funds. And that's like a very, it's a very different process, mm-hmm. but it's also, you get exposure in a very different way. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. One more question. About, sorry. <laughs> this is, I, I, need, I know, I know, but I just have, like, have to be an accre- you have to be an accredited investor. Uh, Investor, though, to do angel investing. You do. You have to have a certain amount of income, basically, is what that means. And with angel investing, do you get money when they sell or do every year do you get 
what's it called? Dividends or a portion of the profit? So you get returns based off of liquidity events. So when they sell is like a best way to describe it. Okay. Got it. But you could also get, you could sell your shares on a secondary. So there are whole secondary marketplaces and later stage investment firms that specialize specifically in this arena. But technically, if you're an early stage investor and 10 years into the company, you need liquidity or you want liquidity, then you could put your shares on the open market and you could sell those secondaries for a profit or depends on obviously how the business business is going. going. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I just entered into the VC space, as we know, as the sisters know and Kara knows. Yes. Started a company called Camber. We love. Uh, we love. We love. And as we were raising our pre-seed, it was my first exposure to venture capitalists, the world of it. I mean, obviously early stage and angel investors and all that. I have my thoughts, but I want to hear from you. (laughs) What are some blind spots that you are seeing in the landscape right now? Because when I see, when I look at you, you are like complete opposite of what I see, what we know about venture capital, what we're told, what the, you know, stereotypes are. You are literally the most, like the biggest breath of fresh air that this fucking landscape needs. Thank you. How are you, how do you see those blind spots? And then what are you doing to rectify them? Oh my God. I mean, (laughs) big question, loaded question. I think the biggest blind spot when I look at just private capital markets in general is there's such a lack of diversity amongst capital allocators. And I'm not necessarily just talking like diversity in terms of ethnicity or socioeconomic background or anything. I'm, I'm thinking more so like true diversity of thought. That doesn't need to be like, a physical appearance. It's more so like, what is your background and how are you applying it to sort of mitigate like personal biases in the investment process? Because ultimately the way that the, the way that firms work is deals are typically driven by a partner at a firm. So they'll get an intro or someone else will get an intro, evaluate the deal, bring it through to IC. Someone's championing it. It's their deal. And deals are associated with people's sort of like They're associated with your personal Rolodex as you move through life. So there's a very like personal association with the deal. And I think because of that, when you're evaluating, you look at it from such a personal lens through that lens that is, and and it's not purposeful, but there are, you know, your own biases I was about to say, yeah. that come into yeah. play when you're looking at a deal. I mean, if you've been burned by an app before for whatever reason, or you personally are not a foodie and don't understand kind of like the local cultural need, like those biases are going to play into the decision to ultimately like invest in the deal or push, try to push the deal through or not. And it's like, the more you think about sort of what the stereotype of traditional private equity looks like, the more you start to like see the same person and background replicated. And there's a lot of power to that because the training is there and it's, you know, a relatively archaic industry, but it's also that way for a reason because it needed to be. And I think now we're moving into the space where it's becoming, it's becoming easier. I want to say easier. It's not easier to be an entrepreneur. I think it's easier to choose to become an entrepreneur. Oh, 100%. I think it's a little bit more... It's just a little bit more like culturally understood. And because of that, we're seeing people that wouldn't otherwise have been entrepreneurs decades ago becoming entrepreneurs. And what needs to happen is that 
private equity needs to start to match that diversity amongst entrepreneurs. Otherwise, the people who get funding are not going to be the people who are creating the businesses for a wider range of the community. Ever since having a baby, I've been extremely conscious about what I spend my money on and which products I use. And clothing is no different. I want my wardrobe to be sustainable, good quality, and timeless. You have to be talking about Whimsy and Row, right? Whimsy and Row is an LA-grown, eco-conscious brand born out of the love for cute, comfy, and classic styles. Every piece is made by women for women. Quality goods, local production, natural and organic fabrics. Yes, please give me all the linens. Just like OK Sister, Whimsy and Row is based on the idea that women are multidimensional. There's a balance of flirty feminine and minimal masculine in all of our wardrobes, and Whimsy and Row means exactly that. From special occasions to everyday effortless styles, their clothing is meant to mix and match and wear on repeat. I have been wearing their Kira pant in black linen probably three times a week. Sisters, if you've been listening to this podcast or following me on Instagram, you know that Whimsy and Rose Kira Pant in Black Linen is a sisterhood staple at this point. Founder Rachel Temko created the brand back in 2014 because she wanted to create an approachable and inclusive brand that cared for the people and the planet first. Get the full Whimsy experience IRL at their Venice location or shop online at whimsyandrow.com. Their store in Venice is so cute, I can attest. And if you're in LA, I highly recommend stopping by. They are always putting on these amazing community events. They just launched their spring summer collection and we will be living in it all summer long. Visit their website, whimsyandrow.com. That's W-H-I-M-S-Y-A-N-D-R-O-W.com and use code OKSISTER for 15% off. Sisters, my goal these days is to always look put together when I leave the house. Nothing over the top or super dressed up or anything like that. I just want to look put together and feel good about what I'm wearing in an effortless yet refined way. When I look at my closet every single morning and think about what I can wear that is chic and intentional, I usually end up grabbing one of my Jenny Kane sweaters and I always end up loving the way I look and the way I feel in them. You all know, sisters, that when I envision my highest self, I am wearing Jenny Kane. Their sweaters are the quintessential must-have item. I cannot stop wearing my Marina set. I throw it on and immediately feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie, like I could just walk on the beach in Santa Barbara. It is the coastal grandma aesthetic. My favorite Jenny Kane sweater right now is their everyday sweater in taupe. This is the definition of a staple that every woman must have in their wardrobe. Sisters, trust me on this one. I wear it with leggings, oversized jeans and a little kitten heel or a silk maxi skirt. Legit, Mads and I are so obsessed with wearing our Johnny Kane sweaters that we've literally shown up both wearing the same sweater once, the white alpaca cocoon crew neck, which is this deliciously oversized sweater. Yeah, that moment takes the cake. Both of us walking in with our matching Jenny Kane sweaters. We're obsessed. Can't take them off. Wearing them every day. The type of staples that save your outfit. That is what I love about their entire collection. It is truly the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless designs. You can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. Find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code OKSIS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code OKSIS. O-K-A-Y-S-I-S. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. 
talk about this new entrepreneur because I think that I'm not in this world because I don't have a business that would need to raise investment. And I'm also someone who's very honest about the fact that I do not want to start a business that would need investments because that's not the jam that I want to walk down. I respect that. But I think that people who become entrepreneurs, they just immediately think, well, I need to raise capital and I need to go the VC route. Can you talk about why an entrepreneur shouldn't go this route or what would, should choose a different route if that makes sense? Oh, totally. I mean, look, the way that public perception and the markets sort of perceive fundraising is going to be a pendulum shift no matter what. Like we went from a hugely hot market where it was a seller's market basically to the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction and you're looking at like you're looking at a buyer's market. Valuations are slashed. I mean it's people are really struggling to raise capital regardless of if the business is good or not, truthfully. And it's like there has to be a sort of middle ground. I think where that question is fair to even ask as an entrepreneur because it's going to vary over time. That being said, I'm a huge proponent, always have been, of bootstrapping a business until it reaches a point where you need capital in order to overcome an inflection point or take advantage of scale opportunity. Like The biggest problem I see in fundraising is, I mean, there are a couple of, of things that it's hard to see entrepreneurs coming to you with. The biggest thing, though, is people who are raising capital for the wrong reasons. They're raising capital for inventory or they're raising capital to like do something that is ultimately not going to impact the business scaling 100x. They're looking at the short term versus the long term. And I think if you're building a business that is so scalable from the get-go that you can reach your goals without bringing on an injection of capital in order to accomplish those goals, that is a hugely powerful business. Yeah. The other side of that is like if you're raising specifically because you are at an inflection point, you need to build an app that you already have demand from a community for, you know it's going to be successful, but you don't have the capital to be able to like get over that hump or you need a CTO or whatever, like that also makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's just each business is so different And I'd rather that entrepreneurs sort of look internally and and I'm hoping that with the pendulum shift, there's going to be less of like sex appeal around sort of like big raises in general. Because what happens after the raise? I mean, I'm sorry. Fuck, that's when it like really starts, you know? So that's something I've been very honest and transparent about is I was definitely caught up in that world of raising money just to to raise money. The stamp of approval, what that means. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course you get access, you get resources, but I don't think, I have a lot of founder friends and I look at them and I'm like, do you understand what you are going to need to return when you get that money. I think people just think, Golden handcuffs oh my God, and let's just, like, I just get free money, literally, that I don't need to return. Yeah. Do you understand the pressure that is going to put on your business to grow at an unnatural rate? And so I think I kind of took a step back and I was like, for Camber, do I want to grow it to that level? Is it is it a business where it even needs venture capital or it needs mm-hmm. that type of institutional uh, capital? But I really, especially people in the tech space, and I learned this last year, was, oh my God, it's all fucking people talk about. So you get wrapped up, you think you have to as well. And there again, there's that stamp of approval. And I just saw so many companies fold because 
they raised when they shouldn't have and they didn't know what else to do. And they're just thinking that it's the right thing. So is there investor ethics that are coming around? Because I think that that's like when I have looked at the patterns, like for my business, I am now creating a tech component. And so literally the other day I was like, I need to get investors because if I get investors, I know that I can get this product out to the market faster and that's how it's going to scale. But then I took a step back and I was like, that's not the type of lifestyle I want and I see the value. So I'm like, how can I bootstrap this until maybe I need to do something like that? But I think that I've we've been seeing the landscape where my opinion is that not, obviously not you, but the old version of the investor landscape is that there's not a lot of ethics around what's best for the entrepreneur and the business sometimes. Totally. And so like you have to really know if it's a good moment for you. The issue is misalignment of values, right? And yeah. misalignment of like, growth opportunity. And I think it depends because I I don't, I think it's sort of like the right partner has the right ethics and they understand that backing the entrepreneur is going to be what allows the company to scale. Mm -hmm. I think where you have issues is that misalignment of where's the company going and what does the company want to accomplish? And I think it's really hard. It's it's kind of like dating. So it's like oh, you it's, sit down for oh my god, it's so much like dating. Yeah, for a first date, and you're like, great, I want to have kids in five years, and the guy's <laughs> like, <laughs> they're, they're like, no, I want to have kids in twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or honestly, the guy's like, I want to have kids in five years too because he wants to fuck you. Like, sorry, right. I'm just gonna say it. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. the thing is, is like, you might have a hot company, and the investor is like, I'll say whatever it takes to get into that deal. That's them being good at their job because ultimately investors report to their investors. So like a firm is working for their LPs. So it's also, it's, it's a little bit cyclical and I don't want to just defend investors all day because there are like ethical issues on both sides, truthfully, but it's like the way that the system has been built is not conducive to like collaborative growth, if we're being honest. And I think that my hope I hope and part of what I want to do for the space is that that will change. In I was going to say exactly years. what you're doing is exactly what the new age of investing needs and should look Thank like. You. Okay, I'm going to ask a selfish question from an entrepreneurial perspective and anyone who's listening who is going out to raise money. Something that I found really difficult was the power dynamic. And <laughs> Kira's like, I have thoughts. Buckle up. Sorry, get so, me started. The you know, power dynamic between? The, the control. The oh. control in the conversation, right? I kind of equated it. I grew up doing theater. So I always equated it to auditioning. And, you know, at first you could be super nervous and you're going there and you're trying to please them. And like, oh, they're like sitting there and like looking at their phones and don't even care about you. But you could also go in with this mindset of like, oh, I'm here. I'm the one you've been looking for. Your job is done. Like, hello, like you can go home now. I've just, I've made your job easier. And so that was the attitude I did in pitch meetings where I was like, no, it's kind of even Tink says this, where she says, it's not if they like you, it's if you like them, you know, just completely switching that. But what I struggled with still was like, even if I had that attitude and even if, you know, whatever, there was rejection, obviously there's going to be, and there was a ton. But I was, it was tied a bit to worth at that point. And I was like, why are you getting to decide if my company continues or not? You know what I mean? And there was a little bit of that where I was like, I'm so mad that you guys like totally. have the control to do that when you don't even know me. I've, I've, I'm proving my worth to you time and time again. It's not working. So talk to us about what is, when an entrepreneur gets into a meeting, because you're on the other end, like, 
what type of energy are you looking for or mindset that you're, you're so turned on by and you're like, oh my God, yes, they're in control. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. It's not a fair answer because it's literally, it's also, it's, it's just like dating. Yeah. If you are confident in what you bring to the table, that is the first thing that an investor is going to smell. And it's not even, it's like perceived. They don't even think about it. It's just an immediate reaction. It's totally. like pheromones, you know? Mm. But the other side of it too is like, you can't be too confident because it has to be like, oh, is there room for us to provide value? So I think respect. the first, yeah, I think it's like a mutual respect. And I think it's an understanding of like, each investor wants something different when they get into that meeting. And it's less about like giving them what they want. And it's more about understanding by the end of that meeting, what it is they want. If you have what they want, if you can give them what they want in that sort of like, you know, feeling good about yourself and vice versa, like, do they actually have what you want? And mm -hmm. it is a power dynamic shift, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, you might be head over heels for this guy and he's in love with someone else or he's just not interested and it doesn't make it hurt less, but that is the universe redirecting you and saying, just you wait, I have somebody else that's a better fit for you. And the thing is, I also hate saying this, but it's true. Like there are some businesses that are not good businesses. There are some entrepreneurs that should not be entrepreneurs. And there are some businesses that are incredible businesses, but just don't need an injection of investor, of, of institutional capital. And honestly, an investor would probably get in the way of those businesses. So it's sort of like sometimes rejection, this is the one piece about investors that is a little bit difficult for me personally on this side is like rejection sucks and like having confrontation is not fun for most people. So I think it's on our side of the table to be really transparent about why it's not a fit mm -hmm. for the firm mm -hmm. and giving like actual feedback that an entrepreneur can then internalize and use instead of ghosting or even saying like, oh, you're too early for it. Like I'm guilty of this, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's the, 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 you're too early. I got that many a time, but I, I also really respected. There were a handful that it felt very thought out the rejection email, you know, very like we respect everything you've built. Like these are the reasons we're not going to get there right now, but keep us in the loop. I was, re I really appreciated ones like that. Yeah. The ghosting and the, it's too early for us. I'm just yeah. like, um, <laughs> question on the flip side of things. If someone's interested in being an angel investor, what's the first step that one would take? So I think a great place to start in general, and this is a longer road. So again, I'm sorry, it's not an easy answer, but I think it's important to start to understand the value that you bring into a room besides your money. So I think it's important to start with taking advisory shares. I think getting equity in exchange for sweat, where you are responsible for bringing something to the table that is not your money, is a great place to start. And I think starting to get a feel for like the founder advisor sort of dynamic, what it would look like being an investor, starting to get back end insights into like how a business is run, what board structures really look like, how cap tables are built. Like it's okay to not know. And I think that's something that I'm personally really struggling with. If I'm being honest, like you go from a career where I could have done that in my sleep for a decade into a totally different industry that I candidly, I took courses for, like I took university courses online that I paid for myself, did myself in my free time, like to start, I don't think they're all super helpful for what I do right now. But the point is like, you have to learn and you have to be okay with 
learning and being a student again. So starting there is a good place. And I think from there, you'll start to get the intros to the companies that you're excited about and interested in. And that's when you can say, okay, well, let me pitch you. I want to put a little bit of money in, but here's the value that I can offer. And I've already learned that I can provide that value because I've advised these companies. And then it's easier to get into deals. You know what you're doing. You feel more confident Mm -hmm. and you can actually provide value versus I think that there are a lot of angel investors that just want to cut a check. And that's that's great when you're talking like big money. But I think when you're doing tiny little checks that sort of like muck up a founder's cap table, it's important that you can really add value. Yeah. Question. Do you not want to be an entrepreneur? Do you not want your own business? Because your your path is so interesting to me because it feels like you take responsibility and the, the bulls by the horn when it comes to your career. And Thank you've you. almost created your career in a way that I have not seen other traditional employees necessarily do. You have a personal brand around your career. You take what you learn and then you do this, you know, angel investing privately. And it feels like one would consider you an entrepreneur because you've, you have all the makings and the markers and, and the, per, the personal brand and the education and the curiosity and all of that. But it seems like one, you're much fucking smarter than all of us because it's masochistic to start a business. But I'm just wondering I wor- because I want to wish it on my worst enemy. You're um you're so intent you this is clearly intentional and calculated the way you've built out your career and it's obviously very important to you. It's not just a job. Was there ever a moment where you said to yourself, "No, I'm just not the entrepreneur and this is where I fit best?" Or do you have that conversation and debate within your head? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually, I, my first boss is one of my closest friends. Her name's Sarah Brooks. She was the founder of Covet. And we were talking about that because she is an entrepreneur through her core. And I have always described myself as an intrapreneur. Yeah. And I think that that is, I don't want to say never, obviously, but I am, I am so happy building things and like leveraging infrastructure and the corporate arm to be able to create something that's unique, but Mm -hmm. being able to do so with like backing support, a team structure. I'm saying that as I'm literally at a firm that is another startup, but (laughs) I have, I have a history of being startup world, but I like being, I like being an entrepreneur. I like to take someone's vision and grow it. And I think that's why I like being an investor. It's similar to what you are as like a service provider when you're like, you're doing PR, you're doing top of funnel marketing, you're creating partnerships, you're adding value to other people's businesses. And there's something about me that just really enjoys watching other people win Mm -hmm. and succeed. And I don't know if I would get the same joy out of doing that for myself. It almost feels, yeah, I think back to my earlier point of not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. If you love like helping other people be the best version of themselves and that inadvertently makes you the best version of yourself, then if it's broke, why fix it? Maybe one day, I don't know. It's uh, honestly what you just said. If anyone is listening and they're thinking about being an entrepreneur, I really want them to ask themselves because I think that the entrepreneur movement needs to come to the forefront because I think that so many people would lead so much more fulfilling lives if they really reckon with themselves because there is a way I have 
uh, a couple people on my team who are very entrepreneurial and they are lit the fuck up by their jobs because they know what they want and they're fulfilled in that sense. And I think that conversation needs to be had because I think people think that the entrepreneur is the only one that gets the freedom and the fulfillment and the alignment and like all the glorified shit when, when really what you've done is so strategic and smart and aligns with you. And so I just implore other people to ask themselves that question about what actually lights them up and what actually fulfills them because they're going to be way more successful in that route than just doing something for the sake of, you know, like raising for yeah. the sake of raising, right? Yeah. It's that conversation. Kira, this is your next TikTok topic. I mean, I, I actually like, should. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I can't believe I haven't talked about this totally. yet, but it's also, it's like, as an entrepreneur, I think a common misconception is like when you work for someone else, you're like on their time or you're on their clock. And I think the power of an entrepreneur is that they understand how to help scale and build mm -hmm through an entrepreneur's lens, if that makes sense. Like they work with an owner's mentality. Totally. And 100%. when you do that, people trust you and it's oh not misguided. So I've like, I've never had a job in my entire life. And I hate the word job because I think it's all career, whatever, but it, yeah. it builds to your career. I've never had a position in my life outside of maybe the first two years that I was at Covet when I literally knew nothing about anything where I wasn't fully trusted and my day-to-day -day was not largely controlled by me. Mm. I set my own schedule. Mm. I do what is best for the company and my company trusts me to do that. So, okay. Yeah. I just want to, okay. From an owner's perspective, my director is the same way. And people ask how to be successful within a company. That's how you be fucking successful in a company. I do not even ask my director what time she's working. I don't micromanage her. Like she has an owner's mentality. If you can be an entrepreneur with an owner's mentality, you won, you, you win. And the entrepreneur will take you to like the moon with them. They really will because it's impossible yep. to find someone. It, like Finding someone like that is rarer, in my opinion, than a good entrepreneur. And I think part of the reason why it's rare is because so many people who are entrepreneurs are misguided in the fact of thinking that they're actually entrepreneurs. Yes, yes. So they're yes. looking for what they want to do and not appreciating what they have. And I'm not necessarily saying like, don't quit your job. There are entrepreneurs that should be entrepreneurs. Yeah, I yeah. think you guys are perfect examples of that. Yeah. But there are also people like your director who are amazing entrepreneurs and that is equally cool from yeah. a fellow entrepreneur mm -hmm. speaking you know not biased at all yeah. but equally cool equally fulfilling and equally flexible I yes love that. 100 wow I could talk to you all day about this just because this is something that I've gotten so excited about yeah. seeing Heather work for me like she'll literally like the other day she was like that's why your name's on the wall and then she'll walk out of my <laughs> office but it's like we really are equal in yeah. the sense yeah. and it's just like different roles in the business it's yeah. awesome okay yeah and I, and yeah. you can give the baby back I think that's the other part too. yes 100 like, like your name's on the door it's like aunt life I yeah. get when she when Lily starts crying I just give her back and I'm yeah. like okay bye honestly like I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur facts. aunt yeah you're an entrepreneur <laughs> <laughs> you're an entrepreneur mom. It's a, it's, it's a, wait, I want to talk about trends. I want to know about what are you so excited about in the business sphere right now? We kind of, you know, before we hit record, we talked about curation as service and you made a whole TikTok. And this is something I love about your TikToks. Everyone listening needs, needs to go follow you because you're able to put into words concepts and even things that I do as an entrepreneur and as a business owner that I just was like, oh yeah, I do that. But I like didn't know there was a term for it. So you break it down so eloquently, but curation as a service, that's also something that 
I have been super interested in because as we're growing our TikTok with Camber and, uh, you know, people are coming to us as this trusted resource because there's so much travel information, recommendations. The information overload on the internet is insane. It doesn't have to be just travel, any industry. And so people are then going to these tastemakers, these people, these people they trust to curate that information in a specific way. And that's curation as a service, right? So tell me a little bit about why you're interested in that, but also just like other trends you're just seeing that, you, that you've that you been interested in. Oh my gosh, yes. So I think why I'm so excited about curation as a service is because there's like, there's this conflation of like entrepreneurship and new businesses. And people say the competitive landscape is getting increasingly crowded. To me, it's just like more opportunity, more choices, whatever. But with more choices comes a difficulty of choice. And I think that's where you got curation as a service. Why I'm so excited about curation in service form is because I see that as being the future of like e-commerce. So you think about like, Again, pendulum slings. During COVID, you had this sort of like direct consumer e-commerce boom. People were stuck at home. They weren't going into stores. But that didn't necessarily, it was serving a need during a time. It didn't necessarily mean that consumer behavior had changed. And I think what happened is people went back out in the real world and there's a notion that the pendulum has swung the opposite direction. They want to have these in-store you know, experiences. But in all honesty, I think that that has always been an innate sort of need and desire. And this is just like a correction. So what we're seeing is like e-commerce, direct-to-consumer shifting back into kind of like wholesale, resale, retail, d- distributor relationships. And alongside that, there's this need for like, well, okay, what is e-commerce? Like, what is the purpose of e-commerce? And there are two purposes. The first purpose that I see is convenience. So you can sit at home. You don't have to leave your couch. I mean, I'm this kind of a shopper. I sit in my sweats all freaking day and just shop. I work, I swear. But like, <laughs> You're like uh, let's be clear. Guys, it's a Sunday. This is what I did on my Sunday. But yeah, you just sit at home and you're, and you're, that's what, that's what e-commerce is for, but it doesn't negate the wholesale. It doesn't negate the retail experience or a brick and mortar experience. So the convenience aspect is like, okay, that's what e-commerce is for. You can get things in two days on Amazon, whatever. But what I think is emerging is this idea of like curation as a means for driving people back to e-commerce. And I think that this can also show up in brick and mortar and retail down the road. I think right now where it's going to start to show up is through the creator economy and through just like commerce, direct consumer. Um, But I think the OG in this is just like, look at Moda Operandi. Look at LSD. I mean, that is literally what I think each and every incredible creator is going to be. The ones that can rally their communities around their curated lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And then there are like there are platforms like Offscript that are launching that are basically creating moda operandi for literally anybody who wants them. There are link and bio sites. And then on top of that, you have the like it's like convergence of like commerce enablement tools that are allowing creators to do this and creators can finally monetize their lifestyles in a way that's meaningful and curated that isn't Amazon. And like, yeah. but I is guess Amazon a version of the curated as a service, like the yeah. Amazon storefront yeah. or like Amazon Revolve, storefront, which is like your favorite Revolve picks that they do. So this yes. is something that I like the new editorial. So this is like something yes. I've come to terms with and I heard it first. Do you know Saria Zut? Have you? I don't. Oh, you would love her. I think he actually ta- chatted with, okay, I need to send her you her stuff, but 
she is like this technologist and thinker and she's incredible. And she's building this thing called Startupy. And it's essentially just like a knowledge base, a curated knowledge base. And cool. she coined the term boutique search engine. So, you know, we have like the Googles and all these like huge search engines and we have directories like Yelp or TripAdvisor. And then in the middle are these boutique search engines, which is like thing testing, Startupy, uh, wire cutter, and I would put Canberra in there. And then yeah. so there's this this like population of like niche companies that are curating things around because we're just like we're so tired of the directories Yelp it's like the noise is insane Google it's like how do I know how do I trust these results like who is giving me these these results so she distinguished between being a creator on the internet and being a curator on the internet which I was like oh that's me like I literally you know I curate book recommendations. I love, I'm not a writer. I'm not a romance novel writer, but I curate amazing recommendations that people then trust. I curate travel recommendations. Everyone knows this. And that's, uh, I'm not making a restaurant. I'm not a restaurant owner Wait, or a chef. It's just like a journalist. No, this so, is a curator. No, so like, I know what I'm saying. Like, this is the new journalist because right. this was this was in magazines. We would go and we'd see what the top places to go in France right. when we go to France, where we would see the top ten black sweaters to wear. And this is just what's instead of but, journalism, but it's happening. It's more so about my role on the internet as an internet yeah, yeah, yeah. user. I love that that I am a curator because yeah. I didn't at first. I was like wait, do I have any like opinions or ideas to da, 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 or like, I'm not a, I'm not a creator. I know she's laughing. I know these are the things imposter. We're going to talk about imposter. We're going to talk about imposter syndrome. Cause that's, but that, so that's, what's interesting is I was like, wait, I'm not like creating aesthetic videos and I'm not a creator, but what I'm great at on the internet is sifting through it bucketing recommendations that people then trust. And that's a curator. And I think that's an amazing skill for people to have on the internet. A hundred percent. You can be an art curator, but not a creator. Right. And that's ultimately, and to your point about like this being journalism, I think it's interesting because it's the format is, I feel the only thing that differentiates. And yeah, when you think about the opportunity that traditional media had to pivot into a modern world and largely missed, A, it's quite sad, but I, I think that's like, now the pivot is into affiliate and that's where trust is being lost. Yes. So yes. there's there's also such a fine line with curation being, you know, there still has to be the creator element where you are a face of that curation. Otherwise, it loses that trust and value, I think. So, yeah. How, how could media have done this? I mean. <laughs> I'm afraid that Vogue's going to go away one day. I'm really nervous about it. I, I think would about honestly it be so depressed. I honestly think about it sometimes. And I just think once Anna Wintour is gone and the way they're going, I just, I mean, I, I, I get Vogue and it's like eight bucks a year. Like they can't be making money off this. I mean, look at Forbes. What, it's like how, how, what are they going to do? Go? Yeah, yeah. What are they going to do? What think, could they have done? Oh my god. Become gosh. a reality, a reality thing with all the journalists and the editors, like their personalities. I mean, look hire? at the ringer. The ringer is a really good example yeah. of their employees and the people that are writing are yeah, exactly. literal like celebrities in their own right. Like yeah. I know every 
employee at the ringer. Like, it's so crazy that's, to think that. That's what Just they, they, like, yeah. they should have done. I listen to all their podcasts. I, they are characters yes. in the company. Like Vogue, I can't, I, I mean, I don't really know, except for Anna Winter. I don't know the writers or the this. There's not like True. personalities. Except they have a podcast now, so I'm getting to know the personalities. Okay. Refinery29 yeah. is a great example. Mm-hmm. I think Glossy did a really good yeah. job. I actually think that Glossy through the transition became a a stronger brand. Mm-hmm. I don't even think it was about maintenance, but I think they did a beautiful job of like shifting into different mediums. Yeah. But you're right. There's an aspect of like people want to see people yeah. associated with brands, even if they're legacy brands. Yeah. So at what point does that become great? We're hiring you as an editor, but you're also going to be personality. like a personality. I know it's like being the entrepreneur and having to be on the internet. Yeah. So, right. Okay. So you're a curator. Yeah. What so- am I? I don't know. And what's Kira? I don't know. <laughs> Ooh, Maddie. <laughs> Pressure's on. I know. I was like, oh, well, I don't think you're a curator. No. I don't really go to you for your recommendations. I'm sorry. I don't think you go to me at all, to be honest. <laughs> That's true. That's she true. doesn't even watch my fucking stories. It's yeah. like rude. It's a, it's That's when you're like close. That's when yeah. you're family. Yeah, like, That's when you're family. Yeah, but like, I'd bucket you more as a creator. I think I'm being honest. Like you're a storyteller. You build like, like your book, it was like, it was building a world around like personal development for me, yeah. at least from my perspective. I would like, say thought leader probably more. Yes. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. There we go. That's there a better word. I would say thought leader for you, but but like business education Thank almost. You. Like education, business, thought leader. Yeah. That's what I would say for you. I'm comfortable with But that. you have a life <laughs> you have a really great lifestyle component too. Okay. So I need to figure out where you got the lip thing done because I really want that <sighs> lip thing done. We could talk about that. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Okay, My wait. Favorite. I'm going to ask you, we're going to ask you a little uncomfortable question. Oh, love. <laughs> we love these. I think so, I know which one you're thinking of. So, yeah. You're gorgeous, yeah. okay? And oh, you. you are aware that you are a beautiful, you are conventionally and all across the spectrum, beautiful. Yes. But what I want to ask specifically, because you were on a podcast, What's Going On, which I love that podcast. And you talked about, you know, pretty privileged, but also that you had to work so much harder to come off as intellectual and show that side of yourself. But something we want to more so get into is, do you feel beautiful? Like, do you? Because I think, yeah, I'm just going to stop. You you answer the question. Do you feel beautiful? Okay. So I'm going to piss a lot of people off by saying this. So conventionally, I... And beautiful. I see that. But that's through other people's eyes. And I think for me, it's like when I go out and I try, girls will come up to me and say, you are so beautiful. And that's when I know I'm beautiful conventionally. But I was just talking to my husband about this last night, literally crying on that couch, ugly tears. And I was like, every time I'm with my friends, I feel like the ogre. And my husband was like, you are so fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say it how it is real quick. Yeah. But, 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 but I really do feel it. And there are times when I feel beautiful. I mean, there are times when you're driving your car and like the windows are down and you're listening to some baller music and you just like, I can conquer the world and I'm gorgeous. But for the majority of the time, it's like, oh, you know, I, I have fat fingers. Like I could work on like my abs, you know, I could probably lose five pounds. Who fucking knows? You know, you, you think about, oh, my hair should be stronger. Like I wish my nails were stronger. It's like wish my girls uh, eyes were more white. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So you don't feel beautiful all the time. No. When was the first time you realized you were beautiful? 
I think I've been told. told. You've been told. Yeah. I've been told from, I, my mom used to do this amazing thing. And I don't know if I've talked about this before, but when I was little, I was a cute kid and people would come up to me and be like, you're so beautiful. You're going to be such a beautiful woman. And my mom would say, she's smarter than she is pretty. She's smarter on the inside than she looks pretty. And, and that was like, I heard that growing up. That's what we need to say to LK because LK yes. is conventionally beautiful. Gorgeous. Your and child. She hears it. She, she hears, hears it every day. We're like, you're the most beautiful. And it's like, we need to be saying strangers come up and capable, say, you are the Gerber smart. baby. You are the most beautiful baby. Like I went to, she went to a modeling gig and the mom was like, I'll see you in five years. She's going to be on a billboard. And I was like, everyone was like, is this her first time? And I was like, yeah, she's, they, they were all like, she's a model. You know that. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, subjectively, yeah. objectively, <laughs> yes. So it's that. interesting that your mom said that as well. Do you think that attributed to you wanting to make sure you tapped into other parts of who you are? I think understanding that you have value because regardless of how beautiful you are, like you can be beautiful at different ages, but you're never going to be like sexy and attract attention for your entire life. So if your entire value is based off of the attraction that you receive yeah, about yeah, attraction, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're not going to have the tools to be able to succeed a in other areas of life. But once that sorts to like fade. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so much value in like for you having such a beautiful daughter, reminding her that her gifts are so much more than mm -hmm. just what's outside, that she's smart, that she's creative, that she's has an incredible personality and can connect yeah. with people and understand them. Like the more you tell her what she's great at, that doesn't have to do with like her appearance, the stronger she's going to be. Yeah. yeah. The reason we asked this is I, I don't think, I think it's, yeah, it's a very uncomfortable. And I, when I heard you on that Streaming. podcast, sorry, I thought the, I think the podcast was, what's the point? That's the podcast name. I loved that you stated that. And that's why I wanted to say it on our podcast because we don't talk about this and, and it's very uncomfortable and it's, and it's weird, but like, I really wanted to hear your perspective on, on how the world has perceived you and then how the you have had to yeah. step out and, and, and shout. But also, shout I mean, world. like when I first found your Instagram profile, I was like triggered for like 48 hours because I know this is, this is my thing though. Right. And this is yeah. so helpful to have this conversation because I looked at you and I was like, Perfect. how is she that beautiful? <laughs> how is her wedding that beautiful? And how is she going on this vacation? You know what I mean? It's just like, and she's so successful in her career. And then I talked to you and I was like, oh my God, she's and like, she's nice. She's Fuck. so nice. But it wasn't the perfect it, package, but it wasn't, but it's, it was an invitation oh. for me in that moment to, to yes. recognize that we all view other people like that. And there's other women out there who view me like that and who yes. view Maddie like that. And it's an important thing to stop and pause for a second because at the end of the day, no matter what your life might look like on the outside, internally, we all feel the same. So if we are all working towards fulfillment in our lives and getting better at certain things, and it's why I respect you as a person so tremendously, it was so interesting for me to sit with and think about what and it was because I didn't feel pretty that day, right? Like it's because I didn't feel like my life was together. But other people would be like, wait, what do you mean? Like you have the house and you have the baby and you have the husband and you have the job, right? And so it's just such an important reminder for people that even when you have everything, and by the way, you have everything and I have everything and Maddie has everything because a lot, you know, there's privilege involved, but we've really worked and we're very intentional about the lives that we've built. Even when you 
think someone has everything. There is always the human component and element behind it that we, it's a universal struggle that we all go through. We all go through it. And like, I remember Mads would call me crying about something and I was like, someone is calling their sister crying because they're not as successful as Maddie is with Cameron. <laughs> yeah. In like, the world. It's happening. To think. Yeah. And it's, we're doing it to all of us and maybe we should just stop. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think part of what you're saying is like understanding that that's a projection. Totally. And understanding that like, everybody has deep-rooted insecurities for whatever reason. And instead of kind of like fixating on those like triggering moments, taking out a mirror and being like, why does this trigger me? Mm -hmm. And it can be really hard to do that because I feel like social media these days, I was just talking to my friend about that this morning. I feel like as you scroll social media, you get triggered post after post. And it's one thing to look at one person's feed and be like, I am triggered by this why am I triggered by this and be able to separate yourself. But with apps like TikTok, which I love, but like the algorithm and the feed is, is built to keep you in it. The more social media sucks us in, the more we're just like throwing us into like ourselves into this washer machine of just like insecurity and frustration and triggering. And you don't allow yourself to like come out. But that's, that's exactly it. I think it also goes into imposter syndrome a little bit. And You've talked about this, which is, and it's it's funny, I've been talking about this with some people around me where my co-founder and best friend, Lauren, she was like, you make things look effortless. You do. And I, which is so fucking crazy. I know, I know the back, I know like, the back end of her feel, life. <laughs> it's like, I've never felt effort, effortlessness in my entire life. I don't know what the fuck people are seeing. So that's, that, when she said that to me, I was like, what are you doing? Your life looks people, really fucking people great. Don't, people don't know how much I like having she anxiety and crying like all the time. I, I cry all the time. But I we think cry a lot. we cry a lot. So it's interesting. It's a good reminder that we all. So when you said you had imposter syndrome as well, I was shocked too because I was like, wait, what? How do how does she? So I think and if someone there's would an say acceptance. She's like she was like, wait, you? Yeah. <laughs> like if there's an acceptance that we are all feeling this way, I think it just puts us on an even playing field almost, and we're just so much more empathetic. We're so much more uh, together and human, and not having to show up as this perfectionist, you know, fantasy of ours. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you say that too, because one of the things that I have learned from being in this world, and it's it's interesting because I'm not. I'm not an angel investor by trade. Like, this is not what I do full-time. What I do full-time is I work for a private equity firm. Mm -hmm. So, like, I am traditionally in the private equity world, and those are the rooms that I sit in. And something that I noticed, and I'm trying to learn from, but it's difficult, is that not everybody experiences imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I think that blew my mind because it took me a while to understand it was imposter syndrome. And then it took me a while to get to this stage where I can be like, my friends have imposter syndrome. The people I admire have imposter syndrome and they do. But now there's, I'm understanding there's this like different kind of human. And I don't want to categorize, but you could probably use your imagination too, that don't think when they say something, oh God, did I just say the right thing? Like, did I hurt someone's feelings or was I wrong? Not a blip in the mind. And there's so much power in understanding that and being like, well, wait, like, yeah, it's triggering, but also like, can I harness that? Like, can I soak up a couple drops of just that like confidence 
And I think we can too. So there's like an aspect of like, let's realize we all have imposter syndrome and like appreciate each other for it and support each other through it. But also there are people who don't think like that. Should they think like that? Who knows? But like they don't. And that's the power of it. Like, can you start to like take little bits of that confidence? I I don't identify as having imposter syndrome actually. But I do, I mean, I definitely say things. I'm like, oh, did I say that right, et cetera? Like the confidence, maybe not. But I I would say I can feel like an imposter at times, but I don't think I, I would never oh. identify myself as suffering from imposter syndrome, which is really interesting that is. to talk to people. I think you would agree with that. Basically, like I've never understood why someone else is more qualified than me or why I can't have it or why I shouldn't go after it. I believe that I have every right to do all of it. And so that doesn't mean that in moments I don't feel like an imposter if I'm going to fear or discomfort. But I think there's also a difference between that person, the imposter syndrome, and then the person in the middle, Right. right? Where we just feel like, you know, like sometimes people who don't get depression feel sad sometimes, something like that. And so that's been such an interesting thing for me to understand, I think, sometimes in other people because it's something that I don't historically or really resonate or identify with. What would you attribute that to? I think that most likely it was my mental illness. Yeah. Because it knocked me down so far that I've seen a life where it doesn't feel great. And so I've also questioned society and how we do things from a very young age. So in high school, I just didn't get the GPA system. It didn't feel good to me. So I said, well, it, this doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. So I'm not going to submit to it. So I would just get an 80%. So free. I would get an 80% just so I can get the B because UC saw it as a B. And so from a young age, I've just really um, not liked authority and I'm not like the way things have done. And I've been, my, my whole internal system would totally combust if I do things that aren't in alignment with me. So if something's out of alignment, but it's how society does it, I'm like, well, too bad because I'm going to get really depressed and it's not going to really work for me. So I've just naturally always done what feels good to me. And so it's probably that, that I just don't see. I mean, when my mom asked me where I want to go to college, I literally cried and I said, anywhere where I can dress however I want to dress. Like that was my measure of what a good college was. And so- And she went to Sarah Lawrence where they didn't have grades, where they didn't have grades and then they (laughs) smoked cigarettes all day. You could dress however the fuck you you wanted. So anyways, that was where I was deciding between. Really? I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. but- I wanted to go to Sarah Lawrence and yeah. my boyfriend at the time was stuck in California. So I was like, I can't leave. So I stayed there, but yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Lawrence is amazing. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting because I think that also, you know, we identify with what we say we are and what we say we suffer with. And I wonder if we, I think imposter syndrome is almost like this really strong self-fulfilling yes. prophecy. It's like you have a syndrome, which means that <laughs> It's like my bipolar, right? It's like, I have a mental illness. Like, it's almost like that. And I just wonder if it didn't have such a strong, prescriptive, almost medical and clinical term, if people wouldn't give it as much of a thought. Okay, wait. Do you remember? Okay. I was just watching a documentary. I really wish I could reference it. But they were talking about this notion of like when bicycles first came out, men rode bicycles, Uh but women started riding bicycles. And women couldn't drive, so women were able to get places. Like, they could actually leave their house and, like, go somewhere because they had a bicycle. They could go further. (laughs) But what's interesting is that men were already riding bicycles. Women start riding bicycles. They want to wear pants. They have all this freedom. And then 
some man somewhere coined this phrase called bicycle face. Have you guys heard of this? No. Okay. We so, don't know how to ride, or I don't know how to ride a bike. So <laughs> most women yeah. ride bikes. Scott <laughs> <laughs> would have been like, "Well, I guess I'm staying in the house." <laughs> you would have learned in that instance for yeah. sure. But um, they coined this term called bicycle face, and men and women were riding, but only women could get bicycle fra- face. And bicycle face was like a concerned look, a weathered <laughs> brow a like clenched jaw, like tight glutes or something. I don't remember. That's not a face. But basically it was like what you look like riding a bicycle, like anybody. But men made it because it sounded like a syndrome that women didn't want to contract. So they didn't So they didn't ride. But I mean, that obviously didn't work. But like my point is how interesting that we use syndromes to put ourselves in a box and keep ourselves there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ooh, like lucky girl syndrome. That's a box I will keep myself yeah, in. That, was it. that one I we like. That one. that one we like. We okay, like. we're probably way over an hour. Should we ask our last question? Yes, yes, yes. Because I could. Can we come back? Okay. We need a part. We need a part two. Yes, stay over. Um, also, we drove to the valley, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, we're in the valley." And Scout's like. I don't know what the valley is. I need, she's like, I need to figure out what the valley is. I'm like, it's not that hard. Like, it's just north. Well, it's north. I didn't know. I, I, I viewed it as like Carmel Valley. No, she's like, where are we? I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, it's very beautiful. I Anyways, love it here. Um, okay, so we ask everyone who comes on OK Sis this question at the end. If you could brag about one thing and you weren't allowed to be humble, what would you brag about? Oh, I think I, think I would brag about... I think I'd brag about how smart I was. Woo! Honestly, yeah. you're yes. very smart. This you're is very, very uncomfortable, but I. Um, <laughs> That's why we ask it. Yeah, I, I like an uncomfortable question. I would brag about not necessarily how like naturally inclined I am to learning things, which I got lucky, but I can't take any credit for that. That's my parents and genetics. But I think the curiosity lends to like interest in things mm-hmm. that goes really deep. Like last night, my husband wanted to read a book together in bed. And I was like, great, let's read let's let's read The Divine Comedy by Dante. I thought he'd really enjoy it. Turns out really didn't like it. Um, and then we started uh, The Three Musketeers. Both of these are books that like I read when I was very, very young because I was just incredibly curious. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's what I brag about. Beautiful. I love it. Kira, where can everyone find you? And follow you on TikTok. Yeah. Mm, TikTok is... Kira McKenz, K-I-R-A McKenz. And then Instagram is just Kira McKenzie with an I-E. Beautiful. Sisters, you can follow us at OKSIS Podcast. We love you. We love you. Love you. Hey there, I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. If there's one thing I know from both my personal and clinical experience, it's that we are really good at comparing ourselves to others. We tend to get stuck in the unhelpful narratives that play on repeat in our minds, and we struggle to set boundaries and create healthy love. Each week, I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife, mother, and business owner to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you you change the dialogue in your life. Tune in every Thursday to I'm Not Your Shrink wherever you listen to podcasts. While I'm not your shrink, I am still human and I'm excited for us to be in our vulnerability and humanness together. 